the splendor of the king clothed in majesty let all the earth rejoice all the earth rejoice he wraps himself in light in darkness tries to at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? And all we'll see, how great, how great is our God.
Sing with me how great is our God And oh, we'll see how great, how great is our God Philippians chapter 3 We are diving into Philippians chapter 3. We are halfway through. We are nearing the end. I believe this is week uh, 9, if I'm not mistaken, of Philippians. And let me read this beginning in chapter uh, 3, verse 12. This is a word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your Word. It is empowered by your Spirit, Lord. You inspired it to be written, and it is um, powerful for us, Lord. This is a primary way in that we get to know you, to interact with you, to understand your heart, and to know exactly why we're here, and to know when we're facing all the complexities of what our modern day offers, how we as Christians are to respond. Thank you that for 2,000 years, your church, through all of its sometimes glaring imperfections, maybe perhaps oftentimes its glaring imperfections, that, Lord, your gospel still stands as true, Lord. We think of the churches that surround us in this city this morning, and we thank you for those churches. And we pray that uh, their time of fellowship this morning, their times of, of worship and the preaching of the word and, and the Christians that are, that are together, Lord, worshiping you, Lord. There is great power in your people who are all filled with your spirit gathering to worship you, and, and especially in a city where there's so many churches. And Lord, we pray for them, Lord, that your gospel may sound forth and that, Lord, in the oncoming months, Lord, in, in our tumultuous times that we can just learn how to partner and how to work together with the churches around us to, to minister to this city, Lord, to be a true lamp and a true light for the good news of Jesus Christ, not as islands, but together, Lord, that people may come to know you and may come to know the power of your, resur- your resurrection and even share in your sufferings. 
And so, Lord, this morning as we walk through this text, as big as this text focuses, it's not so much on many particulars, but on kind of big picture items, would you please give me words uh, that I, I tried to find or want to find this morning to communicate what you have for us. We love you, Jesus, so much. Would you give us open ears to listen, Lord, and would you give us soft hearts to receive what word you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of life is a race. Time never slows down. Our steps are continually moving forward in progression. Only in, in science fiction, which I, I have a little love for science fiction. I'm reading Dune. Any Dune fans in this room? No? Okay. I, I just started reading it uh, a while ago. And Anyway, only in those kind of books, these science fiction books, right, can time slow down or time, you know, be traveled through back and forth, right? But here in our reality, time always moves forward. Every day will come to a close. America, it has its own race that it's dealing with. If you're an American citizen right now, you know that our media and news feeds are absolutely consumed with about three topics right now. About 75 or 80 percent, I did some kind of count looking at some of our major news outlets, about three topics that are consuming everything. Of course, we have COVID, the pandemic we're in the midst of. We have matters of race and racial injustice in our nation and our presidential election, which is looming. And all three, in many ways, become intertwined throughout conversation. The psyche of our nation is consumed. And in our age of YouTube and smartphones, these images of all these things are always scrolling in front of our faces as if it is literally the minute-by-minute reality for all of us. As we all progress in this race of life, there's a question that I do believe we must ask. What is the end point of it all? What is the end goal of it all? What are we trying to achieve If you are nearing the end of your years or you are young with decades ahead of you, this is the same exact question. What is the final prize being sought? When your feet finally slow down and you're rounding out your path, what awaits you? What were you aiming to grab at that finish line? Every metaphor eventually breaks down. There's no perfect metaphor in existence. But the prize, uh, so the the metaphor even Paul uses here will break down in terms of the race metaphor we're going to see. But the prize of these races, these athletic races, appear for Paul to be his final hope. It is the very thing that guided each swift movement of his feet. And if we once again try to put on our first century Roman hats and travel back in time, right, and try to think like these early recipients of the letter to the Philippians, this church Paul is addressing, we've been talking about this for a while, it is a Roman colony wrapped up in the Roman story, the Roman way of life, which is very, very, very different from ours, right? It's an honored role, this the city of Philippi, as a Roman city that uh, enjoyed Roman benefits that not every city had. A decent amount of people in the church are more than likely Roman citizens. And Rome had combined their politics with religion and also with people's vocation, creating this all-consuming identity that made everything you did and everything you do is somehow crossing back and forth into your Roman identity. And if you're a Roman citizen, your Roman citizenship. And even your individual value was affected by this as a human being. The hope became 
as if you were a Roman, right? A well-honored life. Whereupon death, at least you may be remembered after on earth for your high honors. For then, as a Roman, that is the only thing that really mattered. It was a hope completely unattainable by most, as the majority of the empire were poor or slaves, unable to gain such honor, unable to build statues with their name on it, have the flamboyant dress or garments that showed everyone around you that you had this high status. Most everyone lived and died in anonymity, with only the few achieving such honor and status that the Romans hung as their prize at the end of the race. When Jesus came onto the scene, he laid down his own paths, and he laid down his own prize. When he began calling people to join in this new kingdom, the race, if you will, it changed. The end goal, it changed. The prize, we could say it this way, was rather restored. Roman citizens began clinging to another citizenship as primary. And before the world could realize what was happening, millions and millions in the Roman Empire, from the upper ranks of society to the lowest, were joined together, sharing a table together as a family in Christ, all walking together, living in homelands and in foreign lands, but however, living as if they had none on this earth. The goals of living radically had changed, and the world became confused and surprised by the spread of what they called the sect of Galileans, or the sect of Nazarenes, or people who followed the way, or as eventually they became to be known by primarily as Christians, or little Christs. Christianity, historically speaking, there's always been a remnant that was strange to the world, Our race that we're running as Christians is different than the world's race. Our primary citizenship is not of this world. Our prize is different. And our feet, if you are in Christ, they tread paths that may or may not find value in our nation or in our world. What I want to do this morning is try to get into your head and into your imagination this Jesus race that is called the Christian life and cast this vision for all of us that can, I pray, help ease our anxiety, that can cast away our fears, a race that can provide purpose and meaning even in the midst of crisis, of challenging decisions and difficulties that you may be surrounded with because Jesus provides a path that transcends culture history, time, and place. Its appearance may change throughout the centuries. Its practices may be adopted into unique cultural settings, but its primary practices and primary end goals have not. The city of Portland, Oregon has a phrase that they are known by. Anybody know what it is? Keep Portland weird. Have you heard this? That's what they identify as. And I want to argue that I think the church should adopt this, right? We need to keep the church weird. It's like, what are you talking about? Just bear with me. Hopefully it'll make sense before we're done. All right, verse 12. Let's start here. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, 
you think otherwise, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what is Paul talking about? What is the this that he has not already obtained? If you were with us last week, you know that he is referring to his being found in Jesus. Not having his own righteousness, but rather sharing in the righteousness of Christ, receiving the righteousness of Christ through faith and through allegiance to him. That Paul may know the power of Jesus' resurrection. That he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that he may, may, uh, may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul is quick here to slow down and say, oh, hold on, let me... Let me make this clear, guys. I have not actually obtained these things perfectly. I haven't actually arrived yet. I'm not complete, whole. I'm not perfect yet. We can say, amen, Brother Paul. We are with you. I have a ways to go, says Paul. This stuff is not mine yet. The end goal of the Christian life is not quite yet in my grasp. However, I press on to make these things my own. And why do I press on so diligently to make these things my own? Because Christ Jesus pressed on so diligently to make me his own. He now falls into this, this, this race metaphor, okay? Having athletics in mind, Paul says clearly that he, that in his Christian life, that he wants to forget what lies behind as he strains forward to what lies ahead. You think of those images. I don't know. Maybe there's probably runners in this room that I'm definitely not one of them. But, you know, in those marathons, the straining to get that finish line, you know, that, that's the idea, right? He's straining forward to what lies ahead, right? The language used here is one of racing by not being distracted by what surrounds you. A runner that is not concerned with what he just passed by or what turn he just made or what missteps or trips he or she may have had early on in the race, like I said, I can't identify with racing. I tried the whole athletics thing to complete another failures. I tried again, and I was awful, and also hated it. Just never was good at it, and it just never worked out for me. I'm a little skinny guy. I wasn't there. My thing was music. You know, I was, I was a nerdy musician back in the day. I had a big afro and a bass player. You know, that was me back in the day. I do have curly hair here. I'm going to it out. But the only way I can relate today really is kind of through books. This, is, this will be my metaphor, but it's just related here, okay? Because, again, I kept my nerdum, but now entered into the, the book world. Uh, no one knows quite sure who did it, but around 1550 to 1770, when the printing press was made, the highest quality books that were hot off the press literally had what they now call the golden ratio for page margins. Some called it the perfect page. There's a lot of mathematics involved in geometry, which is another utter failure of my life in my early years. But the idea is that the margins above and beside the words, they are bright, they are glowing, they are big, they are wide, they are spacious, so that when your eyes are fixated on the page in your periphery, all you see is page margins and not everything else around you. It is intended for maximum focus to keep you attentive to the book in front of you. Rather, right, to be distracted uh, and, and see all the things around you, you're able to move forward page by page. If you've seen these old books, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is what Paul is getting at. What are the things that try to distract you in this race called life? What are things that you need to forget about right now that lie behind you, 
things in your past that you did or things that were done to you, mistakes you made or failures you have, things you wish you could forget, things that you wish were not a part of your story. I think Paul's doing a little preaching to himself. There was a time when a young man stood outside of a crowd of people as they stoned a man named Stephen, one of the first deacons in the early church at Jerusalem. This Stephen, the man who was responsible for the longest sermon in our Bible, he preached the truth, the hard truth of the hard-heartedness of Judea before the council of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders in the Jewish world at that time. He was preaching against their hard-heartedness who had rejected their Messiah. As he told them the truth, he boldly did not back down. He literally receives, as he's preaching, as he's going off, he, he receives this vision, and he sees Jesus standing not seated. Only time you see him standing at the right hand of God. And he utters in complete joy what he sees to the crowd. And the crowd plugs their ears. They stomp their feet. They cry in blasphemy. And with a mob mentality, they grab him and they throw him outside to have him stoned for his blasphemy to confess that a man, Jesus, had indeed ridden on the clouds of heaven, as Daniel 7 spoke of, and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, one of the normal practices of the day in stoning was to dig a hole, cover the person with a, with a cloth, bury him waist down or her waist down where they couldn't move their arms. A crowd, a circle would get around and they would start throwing stones as hard as they could at the person. Now, there was a young man who stood there as the crowd needed to take off their garments for maximum movement. They needed a trustworthy person to lay their garments beside. As a young man named Saul who stood there, we can assume, maybe with a bit of grinning and laughter and, at minimum, approval. As people said, yeah, Saul is here. He'll wash after our garments as we do this. And this man, Saul, stood there approving. That man, Saul, who we now know as Paul, wrote this letter to the Philippians. As the crowd gathers stones to, to throw, right, this young man starts saying, Jesus, forgive them. They don't know not what they do. And, and, and Paul stands there just grinning. And do you think Paul, as he's writing this, when he says, I want to forget the things that lie behind, that this one more image of a bloodied, cloth, half-buried Stephen flashes in his mind, knowing I was responsible for that good man's death. You think Paul wants for, to forget that? To say, ah, that person's dead in Christ. He's gone. I, what, I, I'm a new creation, Lord Jesus. Tell me once again, please, because I, I, I'm a new creation. I want to forget what lies behind. I know that was, I, I, that was me, but not anymore. That person died. He's behind. I'm new. I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. Do you have such a memory that makes you kind of wince when you hear this? Is there something in your mind that pops up where you're saying, oh, I wish that wasn't a part of my story? I do. But if you're in Christ, what's part of the good news here? That it's not a part of your story because that person's dead. It's gone, right? That wasn't you who did that before Christ. And even if you were in Christ, and even if you, after confession in Christ, still did some really stupid things that almost destroyed marriages or destroyed your job or destroyed your family, even if those things are in your story, we look back. We don't see those things. We see the cross. We look back and we see nothing but forgiveness, infinite forgiveness from our Savior to say that is gone. 
I've already paid for that. I've washed it away. I've forgotten about it. Can you walk away from that? Can you forget about that? Can you move forward and not look at what lies behind, but string forward to what lies ahead? If you're in Christ this morning, you have a God who loves you. He's cast away your sins as far as the east is from the west. You have a God who has delivered you from your past, has brought you through the Red Sea of baptism into the new life of the promised land. Whoever committed that or did that, that person is gone. He's as dead as our Christ was on the cross. And you are alive as a new creation as much as Christ is now alive through his resurrection. And there is where our hope lies. But look at Paul's next words. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hence, every sports locker room with some kind of Christian college has this splattered everywhere, right, in games. But far from a coffee mug verse, there's a little more going on here, right? Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we have attained. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's this prize that he speaks of? The way Paul uh, wrote this sentence is a little strange in the original languages. There's a lot of opinions like of what he was trying to say here. But generally speaking, he, what he is talking about is the prize is the future resurrection when Jesus returns to make all things new. The end of the race for us. We talked about how, yes, when we die, we go to heaven. That's our temporary home. Paul will mention heaven here in a few sentences, right? But we, un- we, we believe with this very strange, unashamedly strange doctrine that doesn't make any sense in our scientific world. People can look at us and say, you believe what? Haven't we, like, gotten past this weird, like, religion stuff that you believe in something like a resurrection? And we say no, because it happened. Because somebody did come back from the dead. we got to do something with this. Like we have to look back in history and say, somebody who actually died on the cross by professional Roman executors. They, these Roman executors who nailed him to the cross, they don't make mistakes. They're professionals of what they do. So the message of Christianity, it says these most highly trained killers in the Roman Empire who killed this man are somehow claiming that they screwed up, that he never actually died, or no, he did, but he came back from the dead. And that's what makes the story so unbelievable to the first century audience to say, this is so crazy. What are they talking about? Nobody doesn't die on the cross. Everybody dies on the cross. They said, that's right. And he came back and we saw him. We have to do something with this. The resurrection is real and it's true. And we believe that it's also going to happen in mass one day when we're all raised. Some to newness of life forever and ever and some to everlasting contempt. But this, if you are in Christ, is our only hope in life and death. A body that doesn't age anymore. No more distance between us and God. No more brokenness between human beings. No more racial injustice. No more separation of families. No more murdering or pain or suffering. But only beauty and joy and wonder and pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God a new world, a new reality. That is the goal. That's the prize. And as you grow in your faith in Jesus, that's how you think about your life. 
Apparently, Paul knows that maybe some people in the crowd was like, oh, I don't know, Paul, I don't know if I believe you. He's like, if, if you don't believe me, that's all right. God will, you know, he'll show you in his own good timing, right? And he goes on to verse 17, okay, our, our final portion of Scripture. He says, brothers, join me in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly or their appetite, really is what he's saying, right? And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now he goes on like another kind of sudden swift attack. He's going after people who walk as enemies of Christ. We don't know who these people were. Perhaps if you were the original audience getting the letter, you would have known like, yep, I know exactly who you're talking about. You know, we're not quite sure exactly specifically who he's referring to, but with tearful eyes and perhaps yet another reminder of his own past. He reminds them of the ways of those whose minds are set on earthly things. Destruction, right? And not everlasting life is their end. Their God is their appetites. And the things that they glory in, they should actually shame in. Jeremiah spoke similarly of Israel of old when he said, they were, ash- were they ashamed, Jeremiah 6.15, were they ashamed when they were committing their abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. What a very vivid imagery, right? They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish men, says the Lord. The summary statement says, minds set on earthly things. Right? These enemies of the cross of Christ can be summarized saying they were set on earthly things. Not on heavenly things. Not on things to do with the new work that God is doing in this world and will do upon his return. Rather, on temporary pleasures. Things have only to do with your life now. Actions that would make sense if there was no deeper meaning or no other reality or layered existence of human beings. If we simply died and vanished into nothingness and our consciousness ended with nothing after, then go, eat and drink and be merry. Paul even says this, right? Whatever you may judge to be worthy of your time, if that's all that happens in our life is if you die and, pff, and you vanish, well, whatever makes you happy, whatever you judge is right for you to do, will just go because you got one life to live and don't waste it, right? If that's the reality. That is a life set on earthly things. And Paul gives us the warning that we all deep down, I think we know, and thanks to Christianity, even much of our world today, I think thanks to Christianity, would agree with is that yes, an overindulgent lifestyle can and will eventually destroy Yes, a self-centered life only brings about division and bitterness. A life led by the appetites destroys families, destroys vocations and work, destroys careers, destroys lives. The Bible is not the only thing that preaches such a message, right? And as we know, the identity is a little unclear. These people are, right? The strength of the language seems to be pretty particular. But however, the main idea is this. This isn't just some kind of ethical, moral race that we're running in, right? As if, like, don't, you know, give in. Don't be overindulgent in this. Don't be a good person and all will be well. Then you'll avoid destruction at the end. That's not what is going on here, right? If we return to the race metaphor, our life is that, that, that life that is informed by the cross of Christ, by the good news of his life, his death, and resurrection. The cross has become the origin 
of the running of our race, the, of the race that we're running in, the cross is the origin. It, uh, and anything that attempts to define life by some other starting point will eventually lead to hopelessness and destruction. There is indeed a larger eternal reality that defines ours today. A little apologetics here, okay? I am arguing the age-old arguments that our life and flesh and bones is not the end. This is not what we see is not what we get. There is an existence after death. I want to read you a quote from a wonderful biography that I read. I really encourage you to pick it up on um, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, the, the brilliant mind behind the creation of Apple and iPhones. You all, you know, he changed all of our lives forever, for better or for worse. As Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was dying of cancer, Isaacson caught him in a rare moment to discuss life after death and God with Jobs. This is what Steve Jobs had to say. I remember sitting in his backyard, in his garden, as Isaac was speaking, one day, and Jobs started talking about God. He said, and he, he, you know, he knew that his death was probably near, and he died of the cancer that he had. So he's in this reflective mood, and he says, sometimes I believe in God. Sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50, maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more and I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe it's because I want to believe in the afterlife, that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear, that the wisdom you've accumulated somehow, it lives on. And then he paused for a second and said, yeah, but sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. And then he paused again, and he said, and that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. See the uncomfortability with the idea, right? That's the conversation that haunts every human being, right? There are moral implications on how we live, but even more so, there are huge questions of meaning and purpose that lie even deeper. Are you here this morning? Maybe you're even wondering, about life after death? Is there really some larger meaning in it, uh, to, your, in, of, of, to your existence? Is there really some other reality out there? Jesus indeed came saying, yes, there is. And it's true. That yes, there is another heavenly reality present. And here is our closing verses. Paul, with this all in mind, he jumps to another metaphor there would have been something very bold for him to say to this early audience, something that would have shocked Roman ears especially, a statement that even uh, uh, ever since really has reverberated throughout all of those who identify in Christ and it still kind of comes as a shock today as I may try to wake you up if you're asleep. I'm going to try to wake you up now. We'll see. Chapter 20 or verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the resurrection, his hope. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself because he is our king and every knee will bow to him, right? Here's the core of our passage this morning. Perhaps this was in Paul's mind all along through the athletic imagery. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is the reality behind it all that defines who we are and how we live today. If this is true, if, 
Jesus is real and the claims of his kingdom is real and his resurrection is a real event that actually happened, if Christians really are citizens of another nation, of another kingdom, everything changes in your life. Everything, nothing becomes the same. We become a people that upon looking behind us, we only see the cross and not our failures. We become a people that upon observing injustice and brokenness in our society, we don't cast all of our hope upon elections and who is sitting in the Oval Office, but first and foremost look to Jesus and the church as a heavenly colony on earth, becoming the very glimpse of the age that is to come when Jesus returns to make all things new. Everything changes. And that's where the church becomes weird. We become strange. The way we live, how we live, how we work, how our marriages look, how we look as young single people in the world of partying and and sex and good times. Everything changes because our prize has become better. Our prize becomes Jesus and his kingdom and that day when he returns to make all things new. I want to read to you a, uh, a section from uh, something called the Letter of Diognetus. I think that's how you pronounce that. And, uh, the author is unknown. Uh, is written in about the late 4th to early 5th century. Okay? And all we know is a person's name is Diognetus. Diognetus. That's probably how you pronounce that. I didn't actually look that up. I'm just whatever. So, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Listen to how the, he describes the church. This is a letter of apologetics. This is a Christian defending the church to a non-Christian pagan, probably a Greek, due to his name. So he says, look, I want to tell you about the church and, and the, the nature of the church. This is how he talks about it. Listen, this is fascinating. Listen to this. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. Instead, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities, however things have fallen to each of them. And it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing and food and the rest of ordinary life that the Christians display to us their wonderful and admittingly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others Yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, but live as if restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonored, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of and yet are justified. They were reviled but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. Are those words not remarkable? Is that not strange and weird to read, right? Who lives like this? 
And why would you want to live like that? What reward is there to be found in this life now by living in that manner? Physically speaking, there may be little to gain by such a life now in this present life. But if we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom, if indeed Jesus is really who he said he was, and if indeed your life does not simply vanish like a vapor and disappear upon death, if this stuff really is true and its claims true, then we read those words from that letter, it kind of begins making sense. And how much does our world right now need that kind of church? How much does our world right now need to see that kind of church? As we close, I have a handful of questions to ask. To return to Paul's metaphor of a race, in your race of life, what are you running for? What is the prize that you are chasing after? What do you consider obstacles to gaining the prize? If you could put an identity to these things, what would they be? If there are obstacles in your life to gaining whatever prize you're trying to get, what do you consider the hope to clear that path? Sometimes we may claim that we are running after Christ, but we still may be running after money, leisure, pleasure, after retirement, after sex or power or a job promotion or a raise. These things are mere counterfeit prizes. They are no prizes at all if they were ends unto themselves. These things are powerful. They may catch our imagination. We may find ourselves daydreaming, imagining some better scenario for our life that we don't quite have yet. And if we finally get that, then we finally got the prize that we're seeking, and we can then take a rest and say, ah, oh, now my soul can rest. But when you hold on to those kinds of prizes, you will find yourself with a fistful of sand as it slips through your fingers, leaving you with emptiness. Number two, as citizens of heaven... Do you follow America's problems to become some sort of end times gloom where if this party or that party gets lifted, all hope is lost and the world comes to an end. I hear people talking about this candidate or that candidate being elected as if they wound up in the White House or stayed in the White House to be evidence that all the world is ending. I don't know, okay? That's, I, nobody knows, and I, I doubt so if you ask me. But we live in a democracy, okay, which is unique, something Paul and the New Testament authors did not live in. They didn't know what it was like to have a government which actually uh, they participated in, okay, like we do. In the Roman Empire, only a small, select, kind of elitist group actually participated in the government, and the vast majority were aloof and had nothing to do with it, right? As American citizens, we have in our power to vote, and of course we need to vote. We need to be concerned about true righteousness and true justice being reflective in our governmental policies, and even in our White House and in all of our procedures, absolutely yes and amen, but that's a conversation perhaps for a different day, because this sermon is about our first citizenship, which is not that one. It's all about our heavenly citizenship. And we need to understand a couple of things. That if Wilmington, this city of Wilmington, is to have hope for its brokenness, if our little corner of Delaware is to have some hope for its brokenness, if our neighbors and loved ones are to have hope, if injustice is to be reversed, we need to maybe, perhaps, readjust where our feet first run to. I see many Christians sprint towards, towards the, the politics as a first toast, sprint towards election day as a first toast, sprint towards uh, reorganizing and reinstituting government you know, systems and, and houses of government to, to bring about these things, and they, they run to that first. But rather than running there, 
first. What if the first fruits of our energies and our thinking and our labors for first fruits? I'm not saying ignore that. No, we don't need to ignore that. There's a responsibility that we were given by God's grace and a democracy to particip- participate in. But I don't think that's our first place to sprint towards. Why don't we use our energies, our first energies, by looking at the church as a colony of heaven and saying, how can we be the first ones to exemplify true righteousness and justice to the world? Is that not what it means to be a colony of heaven, citizens of God's kingdom? If America has issues, which she does, as you all know, vote accordingly. But what if you first look to the church and even if your members here, specifically to Emmanuel, and says, what can we do? And what we are called to do is not just love our neighbors. And I want to say things that are crazy, and I know, but I'm trying to get you to understand the church is weird in this regard. If we truly understand our citizenship, things do get crazy. Because Jesus didn't just say, love your neighbors. He said, love your enemies. Love all people. If they wanted to fraud you, well, give them your other jacket as well. They want to take 10 bucks from me, give them 20. That's the stuff that he talked about. It's crazy speak, right? Leave all that stuff to the wrath of God. Yes, he's coming to judge the wicked and judge all that. But as for you, if your enemy is thirsty, you give him a cup of cold water. If he's hungry, give him a hot meal, even if he hates you and is it against you. So what does this mean for a church? One example would be that we minister to all peoples, our neighbors. If they're poor or rich, you minister to them. Right now, we need to talk about racism and all the issues that are wrapped up in that. But what also is really weird to talk about, weird, I mean weird. In my hometown in Georgia, I saw this, I wasn't there, but it was all over our TVs when it happened. There was a neo-Nazi rally, all right, in my little hometown in Georgia. And they appeared and there was protests. It was, it was, it was crazy to think that these, this group in my little hometown in Georgia had tried to get a platform and the espouser ridiculous, wicked views. But the gospel says this, that they need the gospel too. That they need the good news. Right? You don't hear somebody like that talking in our nation right now. because That's not a popular message. But even the enemies need the good news of Jesus. The church needs to be the first place where the redeemed people from all walks of life can walk in and find a new family. That's the radical nature of grace. That's the radical nature of the gospel. And that's the mission for us, is to reach all peoples with the good news, even those that don't make any sense that you don't want to even be with. The gospel says, no, they need it too. If nobody else is going to them, maybe we need to go and tell them about the good news of Jesus. That's weird. You're probably sitting here thinking, okay, maybe you just said that here. I'm trying to show you the radical nature of grace and the radical nature of the good news. The church is called to deliver the good news to everyone and to see redeemed people in Christ from all walks of life, to be the image where there is no injustice, where there's no poverty or rich report that we're all taken care of and loved. And we see the, the idea of shalom happening and glimpsed in the world through the church, where all these strange walks of life from top of society to the bottom to the outcast to everybody can find a new family in Christ and salvation from their own sins. And that is what I believe the church is supposed to be. That is the implications of this race that we're called to in Christ. That is the implications of our new citizenship. And this is radical stuff. It's crazy things. But my prayer is, as we proceed 
forward, as we deal with our own individual junk, as we have to look past the stuff in our own life and know that the cross has paid for it, that we look forward and say, what are the radical implications of grace for the city of Wilmington? And how can we embody the good news of Jesus by any means possible from our neighbors and even our enemies to love them? May we as Emmanuel become a good news church at all costs, whatever it may cost us. So let us pray. Jesus, I, um, <clears throat> above all, Lord, I just pray that the, your heart could be shown in this, Lord, that our, our, our heavenly citizenship provides us with a, a new race to run that in many ways doesn't make any sense. In many ways, just it, it, it pushes against the things that we think we'd even want to do. But Lord, if we brush up against anything that needs redeeming, Lord, that we are quick to know, whoever it may be, that they need the gospel of Jesus. Whatever system is broke, that we can look to the church and say, how can we be a glimpse of, the, of that system in its right version, right? How can we be a place where people are not oppressed, where all peoples are welcome to sit at the table of communion and to participate? Participate in the body and blood of Jesus as equals amongst all men and women and English and Hispanic and American and black and everything in between, Lord, that the church becomes the embodiment of an equal people before you, of former KKK and, and cops who are, are, are awful, just trigger-happy people, and see those even wicked people get redeemed, Jesus, and see those who on the, in the gutters of our society and drug addictions and, and just the outcasts of our society, all those people, Lord, Lord, come to know you, and may the church be that shining light forward to say, Lord, that you love all people, that you love everyone, even the enemies, even the oppressed, and even the oppressors. Lord, this is a, it's a weird thing to say and a weird thing to preach on, but I, just, I, I, I believe it's the word you gave me this morning that we, we have to think this way, because you do, Lord. You think that way. We need to entrust your wrath to you. You will bring judgment, Lord. But may we be radical in our preaching of the gospel and our living out of this good news of Jesus, Lord. May Emmanuel step forward in that in crazy ways, Lord, if you would provide us the opportunity to do so. Thank you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your good name. Amen.